podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to your World Cup Daily. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Magical and sparkling. How are you? I'm tremendous, but it's been a while. Um, <laughs> today is an off day in the World Cup. We have no games to look back on. We have no games today to look forward to. So what we are going to do, or what I thought we'd do, is take a quick run back through the group stage and the round of 16, and just maybe pick out anything that we missed. And if there's nothing that we missed by the groups, we'll just move past them. And then there's a couple of players that I wanted to run past you that I've looked at and thought they could be somebody Liverpool could have interest in. And if there's anybody that stood out to you, you can throw them at me as well. So let's start with Group A, where the Netherlands topped the group ahead of Senegal, Ecuador and Qatar. Was there anything in that group that we didn't cover at the time or that you've thought about since that you think we should hit now? Yes, just one thing, really, and that's the number 10 for the Netherlands. Um, for a nation who have habitually tried to play 4-3-3, you know, whenever possible, there have been variations along the way, 3-4-3 three, three at different times and so on. But basically, their national identity from the fans and so on is a 4-3-3. That's what they've wanted to play, and it's what Van Gaal had to sort of rail against and try to point out that they have the strength and depth to play three at the back and so on and so forth, which is all fine. But the difference that they have to a lot of club teams, let's say, and even some most of the national teams, I think, who play back three, is that they don't go for the 3-4-3 uh, variation themselves. It is quite a clear 3-4-1-2 as such. So the number 10 started off the tournament as Cody Gakpo. And then he was moved forward, obviously. And it's been David Klassen for the second and third games, I think he started in the group stage. Um, but I don't think that he's been at his most effective. So I was wondering to see who in that squad you think should play that role. So as you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of Davy Klassen and have never been a fan of Davy Klassen. But I do think there's a little bit of value in having him in that role because he does have decent instincts when it comes to getting himself into the box. And when you look at the other options, I mean, Bergvine, no. Gakbo, no. Doesn't have enough in terms of creativity and passing. Memphis could do it, but they're more effective when he plays as the nine. If the other midfield options, I mean, you could use Xavi Simmons there, but he's only got one cap and he's a very young, inexperienced player. The one who would have had that role had the world been a fairer place is Ginny Wijnaldum. And I think he would have been really good. And the other one that they didn't bring, who I think could have played well in that role, is Arnaud Danjuma. 
But of the current squad, unless you want to try Noah Lang there and hope that his dribbling and creativity could spark something, Klassen might be the best fit because the rest of the midfielders they brought, Berghaus, Darun, Coop Miners, Frankie De Jong, and Kenneth Taylor, they'd all be better in a two. You've just a guy has just popped in the chat. The the perfect one was Donny, but unfortunately he made a very poor career move mm. and his career has taken one of the worst nosedives I can remember. Yeah, I think Donny van der Beek would have been perfect for the role. I think it would have been Wijnaldum's, but also Ryan Gravenberg probably should have been in the running for that role. Yeah. Obviously, he's not put himself in the squad because, again, career choices and moves and transfers and all that kind of thing, and it's not really panned out yet. So, How much is he regretting that move to Bayern? Well, I mean, obviously, that's a long-term move, but this was a short-term, very, very big thing, and I think it was... a questionable move let's say at the time anyway um but longer term obviously it can be a benefit for him but still that is three very very high quality players for that one role and for none of them to be there none of them to be available for him is a disappointment i think is it is a a slight downer on the squad as a whole because i think all of them have more quality than at least a couple of players who are in this group but mm. i still think that there are other people in here who could play the the role at least in in different ways i guess class going to carry on but even i think kenneth taylor if you want a similar class and style in terms of being more midfield than forward but able to make those bursts forwards make the the third man as a as a late runner from deep i think kenneth taylor's got you know the athleticism and the the technical ability in the final third to do it he's much more of a, a defensive first player and a ball winner and uh you know a box-to-box sort of option but I think he could probably do a job there, but I don't think we've even seen him at the World Cup yet. No. And, you know, that would also play into the fact that if the Netherlands are going to win this World Cup, they're going to win it defensively. Yes. And if you played him as the 10 and you were able to press that high up and have him recovering ball in the final, in in the opposition final third, that could be very effective. Uh, Steven Berghaus is probably the other natural fit in the role, but, I mean, for me, I, I I don't quite understand how he's even made so many appearances for the national team because I think he's bang average. I, I wouldn't view him as a player good enough to play 42 times for the Netherlands. Um, he just doesn't stand out to me at all. He had a couple of good seasons at Feyenoord, but other than that, I've never really been all that impressed. Moving on to Group B. England won the group ahead of the United States, Iran, and the Welsh. What stood out to you in this group? Um, a lack of committing to attack, a lack of restrained positional play, a lack of speed of interchanging play in the final third, as I've said several times, up until England scored the first goal. I think USA were, obviously in that first game against Wales, they were completely dominant in the first half and completely on the back foot in the second half. So it's kind of not in the same um, description as what I've said. But even so, the speed of play was not that good from either of those sides when they were dominant. It was still quite side to side. It was still quite uh, territorially top heavy, but not 
dominant in terms of creating chance after chance after chance or anything like that. I think England is is the most notable because they've had more wins, more goals, more possession, but all of it has really sparked from the moment of the first goal. And as I said before, England have not been behind yet in the group. I think if they do fall behind to France, there's a big question mark there over what the what the reaction is like because it's been you know fairly safe and fairly predictable up until they take the lead and then they've looked really good. And if you go behind first, how how does that translate into your performance level? Do you become more reserved? Do you become more careful and making sure that you don't fall too behind? It's it's a there's a bit of a question mark there, I think. I think so as well. And it, it is funny. I was thinking about this England team yesterday, and up until that first goal against Iran, they were poor. They were pretty dreadful for the entirety of the game against the US. They had an awful first half against the Welsh, but a good second half. And even against Senegal, they were pretty terrible up until probably 35 minutes in. Is that a concern going into a game against France who could start very, very quickly, where you're not getting going until half an hour into a game? And like you said, they haven't been behind yet. If if they start slowly against France... That could lead to trouble, and if they end up going behind, well, they'll have to open up. And Southgate is likely to play a back three because, you know, he's Gareth Southgate. And if they fall behind and he's picked a back five and two sitting midfielders, it, they're going to find it hard to get back into that game. I agree. I mean, obviously we're not going to do the actual quarterfinal pod now, but I do no. That it might be um, a game that England actually do try and stick with the four-three-three. I think the midfield look very better balanced um, with the most recent changes that have happened. So I, I do think that this might be an occasion where he doesn't go to the back three, or if he does, then at least keep it a, a midfield three rather than a front three. But I, so back eight, <laughs> possibly so. Yeah, <laughs> uh, back eight with the possibility to break forward in ones and maybe one and a halves. Um, it's 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 definitely the biggest question mark in my mind over this England side. How do they react to falling behind? Because let's face it, two months ago when they were falling behind in the Nations League, it wasn't good. It wasn't pretty in no. response and what they did. There was no real ability to get back into the game. And I know, like, you know, spirits and optimism are high now and all the rest of it, but you weren't playing Iran and Wales in the Nations League, and there's a reason for that. Well, there's a big reason for Iran. They're not in the in UEFA, but... Yeah. Wales and that, that caliber of uh, nation obviously is what I'm talking about it's it's going to be not just a step up against France it's going to be all the steps up this is mm. like the top if you beat France you're suddenly favorites to win the World Cup because you're yeah it's, it's like players. you're playing a video game and you've you've found a shortcut to playing the final boss yeah. before getting to the end of the game so yeah yeah it is a big step up and and it's something they have to sort out they have to sort out starting better and they can't afford to just lose half an hour against France. They just can't afford to do it. And we'll see what happens if and when they go behind. Because, like you said, the uh, the results when they go behind, under Southgate in general, aren't all that pretty. Uh, moving on to Group C, Argentina topped the group. Poland second, Mexico third, and Saudi Arabia finished bottom. What was the the moment, the thing we missed? What stood out about this group? Why can't Robert Lewandowski take penalties properly anymore? What is this new thing he's doing? I don't know, but I don't like it. And I don't know why he continues to do it, because his penalty-taking record was not just very good, it was phenomenal. Mm. Right? 
high 80s percent wise in terms of scoring that's really really good and then all on, of a sudden, on, on high volume as well yeah yeah and now all of a sudden he's he's changed and i'm not having it i'm sorry just take them properly you're one of the best finishers in the world just do it properly yeah i i, I don't know if he saw a video of bruno and Jorginho and thought oh i'll have a bit of that but it, it's just no i don't like it at all um no, just yes. Don't do that anymore. But I am glad for him that he did manage to get a couple of World Cup goals. I did find it funny that when he scored his goal in the in the game against um <clears throat> against France, that he almost ran to celebrate it and then realised that they were four 0 down and the goal made it four one and yes. had no bearing on the game. But yeah, stop that, Robert. Do the normal penalty. Just put it in the inside of the side netting. Uh, group D, France topped the group, Australia second, Tunisia third, Denmark fourth. What stood out? Australia. <laughs> Australia's yeah. unbelievable um, resilience and spirit and willingness to commit to a match which only had one goal in it, whatever happened afterwards. Um I, I really liked the tactic, which wasn't on show as much against Denmark as I thought it would be, but I really liked this idea this real fixed game plan that they had in the first two matches of attack first and ask defensive questions later uh, just really commit to going all out try to give yourself something to protect and then see what happens thereafter and ultimately that's what got them through even though it didn't happen from the start against Denmark after they did get the goal that's it's still what happened they they were the most dogged and mm. resilient and full of character and obviously not that good players from a technical perspective but even so some of the players had really really good moments like Jackson Irvine has been I think one of the most fun players to watch in the amount of work he'll get through the fact that he can just pull a pass out of nowhere or take someone on I mean when you compare a few of them in the squad like uh let's say who started a lot Craig Goodwin started quite a lot um yeah and like did all the running but my God, I, I'm probably better at taking people on than he is or bringing the ball down or first touch or anything than that. But it's the team aspect and everybody buys into every single bit of it. And then all of a sudden, Aaron Moy gets the ball and you, and you can see just by his turn and touch and taking the ball on the half turn, oh, he's actually a footballer. This is a real footballer. Yeah, yeah that, this, that, guy, this that, guy's that, not just here for the yeah. crack. No, I agree. I, I thought the Aussies were, were tremendous fun. I thought they... Again, like kind of like Morocco, that togetherness they have as a group, and they don't have the level of players that Morocco do, but there's a, a real kind of one-in-all-in mentality with them where they chase everything, they work for each other, they tackle, they block shots by flinging themselves in the way of things. And it, it's all, it's, you know, it's desperation defending at times. But when you're 1-0 up, that's absolutely fine. And, that's what worked for them against Tunisia. And then when they went one up against the Danes, I mean, we said at the time, the Danes didn't create anything. Nothing. Manny Ryan could have had a nap and probably not conceded a goal. Um, yeah, the Aussies did themselves proud at this World Cup. And look, they gave Argentina a big, a big scare as well at the end of that game. Uh, Group E then, Japan top in a surprise. Spain second, Germany third, and Costa Rica fourth. What is your moment from this group or what surprised you or what do we not cover at the time? 
we covered it at the time, but I'd like to reinforce it, European arrogance. Uh, no, not really arrogance, but it's the fact that so many of these, let's say, bigger footballing nations still turn up to the World Cup and assume that because they have mass quality in their ranks, they'll find a way. And it's not enough. It's not enough anymore. It really, really isn't. And that was why I was very, very insistent from the off. At least one of them wasn't going through. It very nearly turned out to be both of them not going through. Um, I, I just cannot fathom how still at this stage you can get teams like Germany, like Spain, not having figured out how to put their attack together or other parts of the team, let's say. Like yeah. Spain, we've we've talked about it, but centre-back is quite the abomination at the moment. It really, really is. And Germany, for all the magnificent players that they have in that attack, that the fact that they've still not figured out how to put them together properly is such a red flag. Uh, I'm not surprised that they've gone out in the slightest. I'm not surprised that they failed to win the games that they did in the slightest. But I am astounded that they still thought that they would have enough to go through. Yeah, I mean... It was almost like they just overlooked. I think I think you were right when you said it first. I think it was arrogance. I really do think it was arrogance. I think they just looked at the fixtures and thought, ah, yeah, that's fine. No problems there. Um, I, the three things I'd like to highlight. First of all, the, the Vargas goal for Costa Rica and those three minutes where it looked like Germany and Spain were going out. That was wonderful. Uh, secondly, fuck you, Kai Havertz, for ruining that for us. And finally, the fact that in three of their four games at this World Cup, Spain com- had over 1,000 pass attempts, and in two of their games had over 80% possession, and yet they only won one game. And in two of the games where they had over a thousand passing attempts, they only scored one goal. So what I'm left to believe is that Louis Enrique's football is the most pointless football in the entire world. Rodri had Rodri completed over two hundred passes in two games. So four hundred over four hundred passes across two games. That is ridiculous. And yet his team scored one goal. In those two games. Mm. Go and find a purpose in life, Louis Enrique, because this isn't it. Uh, Moving on to the next group. Group F, Morocco top, Croatia second, Belgium third, Canada bottom. What have you got for me, Group F? How angry Belgium made me. (laughs) Don't worry, they made themselves just as angry. Right. We'll we'll start off this segment by um, revealing stroke, reminding people when they listen to this that as of about uh, 15 minutes ago, Eden Hazard has announced his retirement from international football. Uh, and as I've just wrote in the group chat when it came up there, um, he could have done that a month ago. He, he was, I don't even have the words to, to keep describing what these Belgian mm. players did. So do you know what I'm going to do? In fact, I'm going to run through that last team sheet that they put out. Um, and, and the subs who came on and just you can you can give me one word and I'll give you a word to describe what they were at this World Cup. Uh, Courtois. Respectable. Iffy. Thomas <laughs> Mounier. Shit. Dismal. Toby Alderweireld. Old. Old. 
Jan Vertonghen. Really old. Really old. Luca Castagna. Timothy Castagna. Not Timothy very good. <laughs> Dismal. Uh, Axel Witzel. Old. Barge. I have never seen someone fail to turn around an entire circle without actually, like, almost having to navigate everybody do, sat in the front row of the stand. It's, do it do you remember, so... like, the tail end of Ronald Koeman's career when he was, like, it looked like he'd eaten Ronald Koeman? <laughs> and he would run. He would run up to try and tackle a forward or, like, step out to tackle a forward and the forward would spin him. And he just, he had to keep going in the same direction and take a massive turning. He was like watching a, a, an oil tanker turn in the ocean. That That's basically Axel Witzel now. He's, that, that, he's never recovered yeah. from that torn Achilles. No, no, not at all. I mean, and this was like one of the most effective box-to-box players in Europe in his in his best days with Zenit and that. Like, he was sensational. It's quite sad. But not as sad as the fact that he's been left in the team at this stage. The... Um, the second Morocco goal, was it? The one Ziyech cut back and um, Abu Khal smashed it into the roof of the net. That goal, Witzel, I think, lost the ball earlier in the build-up. Then they ran past him in midfield and like took him on and he wasn't able to keep up. But then the ball was like, there was a chance and then it went a little bit wide and then Ziyech picked it up and cut it back. And Witzel still hasn't actually made it back into the six-yard box by that point. And the guy who scores is one of the ones who's run past him. It was just... In a microcosm, that was like everything wrong with that Belgian side. No fight, no desire, no ability to run, nothing. It was so bad. If there is any kindness in the Belgian FA, they will retire Axel Witzel, whether he wants it or not. Um, It's nice to see Eden Hazard retire from international football because he clearly retired from club football a couple of years ago. Keep going through this team, though. Leander Dendonka. Mid. Pointless. Dries Mertens. Old. <laughs> um, spiky. Yannick Carrasco. Went to China in his prime. He doesn't care about football. Disappointing, yeah. Kevin De Bruyne. Probably the biggest disappointment of the tournament for me. Very frustrated man as well. Yeah. Leandro Trossard. Underused at the World Cup. And misused in this final game up mm. front. Uh, off the bench, Jeremy Doku. Promising. Ignored. Yuri Tielemans. Slow. Sloth. <laughs> Eden uh, Thorgan Hazard. Famous because of his brother. <laughs> I will say, okay. Um, Eden Hazard retired three years ago <laughs> yeah pathetic uh, I'm saving just one of them but here were the unused subs which we won't use a word for unless you want to throw one out while I reel them off Mignolet Castiles Batshuayi that was a fucking oddity by the way starts the first game up front scores a goal doesn't get used off the bench in the final game at all when they need yeah. a goal what a uh, Vanneken Faiz, De Ketelaire, Teate, De Bast, Appenda. I mean, it's not exactly a who's who, even if there are some promising. There's some, young yeah, it, it's it's the first half of it is meh, and the last couple are are promising for the future. 
Yeah. Uh, final player in the squad who did come off the bench and, oh my word, Romelu Lukaku. That dude at Romelu Lukaku. This was honestly embarrassing. That's the chunkiest he's been since probably about a month before he left Manchester United. Like, I feel a little bit sorry for him having to be called upon when he obviously isn't He's fit. not fit. He's, he's not fit at all. He hasn't played all year. But I don't feel sorry for him for the chances falling to him and him missing every single one of them. Like, not once did he look ready to receive no. one of those, let alone take it. The thing is, as well, with him, is that will haunt him. Yeah. So when he goes back to Inter, Inzaghi has a massive job in his hands to get his head right, because that could screw him for six months. He'll, he'll, he will live that over and over and over again in his head. That's how he is. He carries bad performances and bad misses with him. It's why he's been such a streaky player across his career. He's all about confidence. Right, Group G then. Brazil topped the group, Switzerland second, Cameroon third, and Serbia bottom. Um, aside from the fact that we both look like idiots on Serbia, what stood out for you from this group? Right, excuse me. You can look like an idiot all you want. I said that Serbia were either getting to the semi-finals or coming bottom of the group. So That's I fair. am right. That is I am fair. Absolutely right. <laughs> um, I will say Cameroon subs. They stood out for me. They were game changers more than once. Yeah. Yeah, I I do think you're right. I think they made really good in-game changes. Um, the standout player of the group stage for me is is Abubakar. Mm. Because like the standout thing for me in the group stage, the most eye-opening thing I think I've seen at the World Cup so far was Serbia, and we've talked about Serbia 3-1 up and the entire team thinking, oh, this is great, crack. We'll all get a goal. And Cameroon just cutting through them time after time. But Abubakar's first goal, I think, is one that will get replayed over and over and over again. A bit like Paborski's goal in Euro 96. Because it's just quite an unusual technique to lift the ball like that. Especially over a goalkeeper who's so enormous. And then, obviously, he scores against Brazil as well. He knows they're going out, so it doesn't matter He's been booked. He gets sent off for taking off his shirt. And the referee going over and apologizing to him and being like, I'm really sorry, but I have to send you off here. And he didn't care. He couldn't have given less of a shit that he'd been sent off because he just scored in the World Cup against Brazil. And despite the fact that I think he's a bit of a twat and he came out with some comments about Salah, he's he's had himself a proper World Cup where he's got two incredible moments that he's never, ever, ever going to forget and that is, they're going to be replayed over and over and over again. Cameroon beat Brazil. It doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter that Brazil rotated everybody. Cameroon have beaten Brazil and he had that lo that lobbed goal against Serbia. Like that's, he's he's the guy from the group stage. That's um, that's those kinds of things, those moments, and those like madnesses, are what the World Cup is supposed to be about. Agreed. I mean, look, can you remember who knocked out Cameroon? Oh, you probably can because it was England in 1990. But that's irrelevant. Nobody in Cameroon cares. What they remember is that they beat Argentina yeah. in the opening game because that's and, what it's and about. Did a load of dances. 
Yeah. And, and that's it. Roger Miller's dancing. Don't remember the goals. I do remember that man wiggling his hips and having a good old time by corner flags. Like, you're right. That is what it's about. And those are the type of moments. And Abubakar has two in this World Cup that will live on for years and years and years. That goal will get replayed over and over again. And Cameroon beat Brazil. It's great. Uh, Moving on then, Group H. Portugal top, South Korea second, Uruguay third, and Ghana bottom. What stood out? Um, I think for this group, it would probably be the the wild unpredictability of the whole thing because it was very difficult game to game to see who would win. I mean, now you look at it and Portugal finished top of the group and are in the quarterfinals after smashing Switzerland apart. But after game one, and even after game two, when they'd won the second game, you wouldn't really say that they were the best team or that they were like comfortably better than the others or that there was no chance South Korea were going to get anything from the last game. It was, I think, the, the tightest group by a distance. Ghana finishing bottom, but I think they quite easily could have gone through. You know, they only finished one point behind South Korea. Like, yeah, uh, this was a this was a crazy group. I mean, it's that late late goal for South Korea that sends them through. Otherwise, they're finishing bottom. Uruguay thought they were going through when they were two two nil up against Ghana, and started to take players off to rest them for the knockout stages. It's just. A bizarre group. I mean, the the big thing that might come out of this group is Marcelo Bielsa might become the Uruguay manager and we might get the ultimate chaos ball with Bielsa in charge and Darwin Nunes up front with Fede Valverde just being used probably as a number 10 or something. It could be absolutely magnificent. But Uruguay are, are I think, I think Uruguay are actually the most disappointing team in this tournament. Because the performances against South Korea and Port and Portugal were so negative, and they didn't need to be. They had the talent to go toe to toe with Portugal, and they had far more talent than South Korea. And yet, the manager Diego Alonso, who has been lauded and rightly so for changing the mindset of, you know, we're not as good as these, so we have to play this way. Through the qualifiers, he actually set his team up to go and attack a bit. And he turns up at the World Cup. He does the same crap they've been doing for years. when he didn't need to do it. They're the biggest disappointment of the group for me, of the group stage. Yeah, I can't really argue that. I think there are a number of very, very disappointing sides. But in terms of how they should have done and the the players that they have right now and where they are, Uruguay and Serbia, definitely the ones for me. Right, moving on then to the round of 16. Netherlands beat USA, Argentina beat Australia, Croatia beat Japan on penalties, Brazil beat South Korea, England beat Senegal, France beat Poland, Morocco beat Spain on penalties, and Portugal wiped the floor with Switzerland. What was the standout moment or moments from this round of 16 for you? You obviously didn't do a couple of the pods during the week. So was there anything that stood out that you didn't get to talk about on one of the pods that you want to hit now? England's number eights. Jude Bellingham and Jordan Henderson playing with the freedom of the world against Senegal once England went 1-0 up. I mean, you wanted to um, try and link this podcast in a little bit to Liverpool. Do we dare? 
Do we? <laughs> should we? <laughs> do, 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 do we? Do we mention he who should not be named? Um, should, we, should we excite the masses and get people overly optimistic? There's, there's definitely like, look, it may well just be that they're having fun with it, but if it is, it absolutely is. Come on. But Jude is properly playing up to it. Like he's yeah. one step away from doing a video on the England Twitter page where he sings, "You'll never walk alone." <laughs> yeah. Like that's the um, only step left for him at this point. Like I, I could fully, fully imagine like a, you know they, they know they're being videoed in training and he scores a goal and whips off his top to reveal like a Liverpool training top underneath or something like that that he's nicked off Trent in the changing rooms or whatever you know something like that is is uh, on the cards I reckon the longer this tournament goes on it's obviously playing along with it and joking up there's clearly clearly like a really good uh, group dynamic there within the squad I think that's absolutely fair to say like we've seen a few of these squads that we've spoken about like um Morocco, for example, that we've spoken about, and the Australia guys. Um, England, I think, is the same. You know, they've they've had this really good group dynamic for a while now. I think that as much as anything on the pitch has helped them get through the tournaments over the last few years. And you can see it's in evidence again this time. But I think that this midfield, the way it's set up there against Senegal, worked a lot better than it did with Mason Mount in the side. I think there was a bit more... Um, off the ball protection in terms of having someone alongside Declan Rice when it was Henderson and Bellingham. And I, I don't know how you saw it or how you spoke about it after the game, but the first half hour when England were not that good, I think Jordan Henderson actually was England's best player. Um, I think he was easily more controlled on the ball and much more willing to do the running off the ball, which needed to be done than anybody else. Like Saka later in the game, I thought was great. Jude Bellingham for this for from like 20 onwards was the best player on the park by a mile. Uh, Foden had a really good second half in that, but most of them were very, very quiet in that opening spell and didn't really do too much to help England out. Whereas I thought Henderson did actually. Yeah. I mean, he was maybe the best of a very bad bunch for that yeah, first half hour. Cause, cause England were, they were, they just, they looked lethargic they looked a little bit lost and unsure of themselves very very uncertain in possession didn't really have any patterns to get going at all like I say Saka I thought actually like about 25 minutes in was a good candidate to come off at half time yeah lots of discussion about Rashford starting blah 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 he got started after that first goal like a lot of the players did like I've said several times now once England score they start playing really well but before the goal went in I thought Saka was very, very timid on the ball. I didn't think Foden really got into the game at all. Shaw got forward a few times. Walker didn't. Kane wasn't really that involved. I thought Henderson was the only one really trying to raise the tempo and trying to win back possession very quickly. The rest of it was very safe, very, very poor in possession, to be honest. Not much movement, not much energy. No, no, nothing at all. And I have to say, I was, I was quite disappointed with Declan Rice over the entirety of the game, even when England were playing well. I still didn't feel like he was kind of matching the level of those around him. Yeah, that needs uh, to be his poorest game, really. He, he yeah, if he's player. like that against France, England are in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because Griezmann will run amok. Um, much bigger tests to come for England, obviously. I mean, look, they they haven't done anything that they weren't expected to do. They were expected to beat Iran. They were expected to top the group. They were expected to beat Senegal. Yeah. They're yet to play a good team. Senegal are probably the best team they've played. And that's a Senegal team missing 
uh, Sadio Mane, and apparently Eduard Mendy as well, because I'm not sure who that fellow was that was in goal, but the Eduard Mendy that was in goal for Chelsea up until about a year ago saves at least two of those England goals. The first one, it's a decent hit by Henderson, but I still feel like he should have saved it. And Harry Kane just put the ball right through him. I, I think Mendy made himself smaller for the, the Kane goal, to be honest. He went to ground, but he went to ground like perpendicular to the ground. So he actually made his, his space that he was covering a lot smaller than if he mm. just stood there. Uh, Mendy has not had a good tournament. Like uh, no. Probably half the goals he's conceded have been savable, if not outright errors, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, and look, it's it's a follow-on from his club form. There's a reason Kepa has come back from the dead to be yes. number one at Chelsea. Um, right, so that is us caught up on the tournament. Now, let's take a little bit of a Liverpool view on this competition so far. So we've, we've talked about Jude, and there's no real point in us going down the Jude rabbit hole because if we are going to sign Jude, it's going to be in the summer. Realistically, there's very little chance Dortmund will sell him in January. Uh, PSG have recently publicly thrown their hat in the ring as well. So now we have to deal with them, as well as City, as well as Real. And you'd imagine Chelsea will at least make a phone call. So there's no real point in getting too in, deep into the weeds on, on um, Jude. But... Who else has stood out to you at this tournament that you think he could be a decent fit? Because I've got three names, but if you've got anybody, let's hear let's hear who you've seen. Kylian Mbappe. <laughs> well, if this part Saudi, part part Qatari bid goes ahead and we've yeah. got all the money, why not? Yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna cross my fingers too hard on that one to be honest. I, I think he's been sensational. Like I just would like to say that <laughs> again at this point, he has been frighteningly good. Yeah. He's um, the best player in the tournament by a mile. Yeah, yeah, sensational. Um I'm gonna not for a Liverpool perspective, but I'm gonna run down just a few of them who I think have been really good because otherwise we're not really gonna mention them too much because they've either gone home or are not playing anymore or whatever. Cool. Um I think it is very, very worthwhile pointing out that while Germany were, by and large, an abomination, Jamal Musiala was unbelievably good in all three games. I think he was their best player by at least as far as he runs in every game, if not mm. more. Uh, yeah, really. he he is he's special, isn't he? Like Theo he is. Theo's been good. He's been yeah. really fucking good, and you'd wonder why he didn't start that first game. If he'd well, started the first game, maybe Lucas is still fit playing centre-back. That's, that's a very, very sad thing to say, but it's probably true. Uh, Akraf Hakimi, who we've already spoken about in the that's in the been most been. recent podcast, oh, so good. I think he's been... He was my best player at the group stage at right back anyway, but I think 16s, he was maybe the best individual performance I've seen. Not the most flashy or the most, you know, obviously didn't lead to any goals or anything like that, but for a complete performance, he didn't do any single thing wrong defensively, and he led everything in the attack as well. He was unbelievably good in that round of 16 game. Um, and there was that penalty. And just to remind people that if Real Madrid had taken a little bit of a longer-term view on things, they would now have Ashraf Hakimi at right-back and Theo Hernandez at left-back. That that will never cease to amaze me. It's unbelievable. Um, a couple of other players then. So far, so far, I think Adrian Rabio has been really, really good. I yes. In the... In the Round of 16 game, he may have been actually... France's best, yeah. best player. Yeah, he was oh, 
so good. Chiumeni started the tournament really well, but has dropped that level a little bit, I think. Um, but Rabio has actually got better. So that's a, a very big thing. Uh, Alexis McAllister for Argentina as well. I think he's changed it coming in for them. And so has Julian Alvarez. Not to the absolutely. If you don't level. mention Enzo, I'm going to get upset with you. I'm, I'm leaving him for you to name. <clears throat> I would also like to make a mention for Netherlands goalkeeper Andreas Noppert, who I hadn't really yes. seen very much of, hadn't played a single minute at international level, obviously, and then has suddenly become central to everything the Netherlands ever want to do, apparently. Yeah, he's he's like Hans van Breuklen, reborn. He's he's quite good, which is a happy bonus for the Dutch because I was really worried if Pasfeer was going to be the keeper. Yeah, I think um, yeah, well, I, I, I think I, I certainly agree with with uh, Alexis. I, I think Alexis and Enzo coming into that midfield has really given Argentina a proper chance to go and win this thing. The problem is when either of them come off, it reverts back to the garbage we saw against Saudi Arabia, and it's not good. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll do a bit more in depth on Argentina when we're doing the pod for them playing. But my my fear is, aside from the messy reliance thing, I think when Di Maria comes back in, he actually makes them a worse player at the moment, just by the fact that they look for him so much, and he's a little bit doing the same thing all the time at the minute. If they just had him as an extra player on the pitch and just did his thing sparingly, he'd probably be very very good because of the work rate and the delivery and all the rest of it. But going through him consistently, I think, is a problem for them. Yeah, I think that's fair. Now, I will say, I don't think Papu Gomez should be starting because I, no. I just I don't think he's of the required level. And I don't know who else they have because um, I can only assume Dybala just isn't fit because, he, you know, he seems to just be along for the crack. He doesn't seem to have come along to play at this World Cup. Yeah, I don't know what the story is there. But even like Angel Correa could be in and he yeah. doesn't have at a minute or anything like that but anyway that's for Argentina pod back to the players for Liverpool top of my list fits anywhere you want to play him is very good anywhere you want to play him Mohamed Kudus yeah he was what he's one of my four for certain I think he has been really exciting at this World Cup I think the versatility is such a big factor he can be in in our setup as we play 4-3-3 he can play as the right side at eight or anywhere across the front three. If you want to shift to a 4-4-2, he could play either wing or in the front two. If you wanted to play 4-2-3-1, he can play anywhere across the three behind the striker. At his age, with the clear room for growth in his game as well, as he becomes a better decision maker, I do think this is a really special player at 22 with that engine as well. Like, and the burst of pace when, when he just decides he's getting away from somebody, there's very little they can do. Um, yeah. He's so strong as well. With it. He is. He's, he is. He, he's got that kind of Ginny Wijnaldum sort of build yeah. where he's, he's short, but he's blocky and he can just maneuver his body in between opposition and ball. And, Keep the ball on a string. Two, three defenders, it doesn't really bother him. He's always confident that he's going to find a way out and find a teammate. I think he's a special player. and I think him and Suleimana are are the future of that that Ghanaian team and that, that makes it a very bright future for them. And, um, the next one is, again, someone I've spoken to, and I've been trying to keep it away from different 
clubs, um, but I can't at the minute. Jurian Timber. Yeah, Jurian Timber has been... He's been so impressive this season. After, obviously, the summer of speculation about a move to United, he's been really good for Ajax. He's come into this World Cup, didn't start the first game, obviously, but once he came into the Dutch team for the second game, they just it all makes a lot more sense because now we're seeing the Dumfries we know who's getting much higher up the pitch mm. and playing with more aggression because he knows he doesn't have to worry about what's behind him because Timber can cover that entire space with his pace, with his power and his aggression. He reads the game so well. He's a really good carrier of the ball as well. Jurian Timber is a really, really good player. And somebody, I'd love it to be us, but I don't think it will be. Because I think if we were buying him, we'd be buying him to play right back. I don't think he's a Klopp centre-back because of his height. So we'd have to be moving Trent into midfield, which I'm open to. Play Trent right of a four, Timber at right back. I'd be open to it. But yeah, somebody's going to get an unbelievably good player. Um, And my only other one that really I'm going to, is not someone that I would have as the top of my list, but he's had such a good tournament and has been linked to Liverpool. I think we should discuss him at Sofian Amrabat. Yes, he is also on my list. So I really like Sofian Amrabat. He's had an unusual career and an unusual path to this point. Obviously, he's Dutch-born and got his footballing schooling in the Netherlands, Uh, came through the Utrecht Academy, Went to Feyenoord, impressed there. Moved to Club Bruges in what was a strange move. and Had a good season, but not not a real standout season. But Hellas Verona took him on loan. He did really well there. And based on that, Fiorentina jumped in with both feet and, and grabbed him. And he has taken a little bit of time to really find his best level of Fiorentina. But I'd say for probably the last 18 months... He's been really impressive for them. He's an, an exceptionally good long passer in terms of accuracy. He's got a good short game. He mixes his passing really well, which I like. He's a bit like Moussa Dembele, of the, the Fulham and Tottenham midfielder, in how he can carry the ball and use his power and his, you know, his upper body strength to just get by people that you don't expect him to get by. He retains possession really well. And then defensively, he's just, he's like perpetual motion. He never stops moving. He's always side to side. So he can put himself in the best possible position. I don't know that he's as good a defensive player as Fabinho at his best, but I think he's a little bit better on the ball than Fabinho. And I wouldn't be against him coming in as, competition for Fab where, you know, they maybe play, maybe he plays 35 games and Fab plays 25 in a season as Fabinho ages and, and maybe is it might stop the Fabinho decline a little bit. Possibly. I mean, again, this is something we, we, we'll have to wait and see. We don't really know where Fabinho is going to be in terms of performance level and all the rest of it after the World Cup, because like obviously he's not had a good start to the season. We know that, but we also know that if he gets back to his best, he's the best out there. But 
do you rely on that do you wait to see if it is the case do you you know have to just wait and see if he gets better bit by bit what what's going to be the story here amrabat i think is not of a technical level at the same as most of our midfielders i think some of the time he can be a little bit loose with the easier passes let's say but i think part of that is because of the speed that he plays at defensively like he's always so so like super aggressive and super quick into the tackle and covering ground and really quick to go side to side to protect that defense that when he gets possession he still has to be moving at that same speed and so then sometimes a little bit of the you know the layoff or the pass it was tries to do it with the outside of the boot or something like that and it's a little bit not as accurate as you'd like it to be basically so i think that there are aspects of his game which can be improved there i think for the price tag which has been going around of about a 30 million euro release clause from from uh, fiorentina is probably about right in market terms maybe a little high but that's based on the fact that obviously they don't they don't want to lose him so you have to pay a bit more anyway i guess so i think it's roughly right I don't think it's like as big of a bargain as you know getting Fabinho for 40, let's say. Um, but there's obviously still capacity for him to improve there. I wonder how he would play if he was needed to be anything more than a destroyer. Like if Fabinho was not available for a, an extended period of games, for example, and we had to play him as the six, but in games that we dominate and he doesn't have to firefight quite as much, do you get enough out of him in a progressive playing sense? Um, these are still probably things that would be in my mind if he was to join, because you don't always necessarily see Fiorentina be utterly dominant in games either. He's not someone who's going to be like, um, sort of 40 yards like that on a regular basis. So maybe an addition to the squad that Liverpool had lacked, but if he suddenly has to be first choice, are we going to get enough out of him for, for, for the extra part of the game, which we haven't seen so much of? Well, I, I think you just alter what you do ever so slightly and you give the two eights a lot more freedom to get forward rather than just the, the right-sided one. You say to Thiago, right, you go and play higher up. Mm. And he's going to sit in front of the centre-backs. The full-backs can go. And he'll sit in front of Virgil and Ibu. And between the three of them, that's enough of a base in this game. So Thiago can commit more, or whoever it is playing the left-sided role. Probably will be Thiago. But, yeah... I, I don't think he himself necessarily needs to be more progressive, though he does rank in the 97th percentile for progressive passes among midfielders in the top five leagues over the last 12 months, which is pretty good. Um, But I, I think his defensive ability and his ability to cover ground, I think that enables more from other players. I think it it gives players more freedoms. This is a guy who, again, ranks in the 96th percentile for passes into the final third. Um, Pretty good on crosses into the penalty area. Could up passes into the penalty area. He's in about the 70th percentile there. But in terms of pass completion, I mean, of his short passes, he's completing 91.1%, which is a little bit low but it is down to what you were saying. There are just times where he's a little bit too sped up and he tries to do something a little bit clever and it's a bad decision. But you look at his medium range, he's completing 94.2% of his long passes. He's at 86%, which is right in the 99th percentile. And he's doing it a lot. He's nearly 11 long passes per game. 
uh, about 31 medium passes per game and about 22 short passes per game. So he is mixing things up quite well. I do think there's a, a real player there. I, I, like, It's hard to judge when he's playing for Fiorentina because there are some bad players in that Fiorentina <laughs> team. And obviously, yeah, and obviously with Morocco, they're set up to be yeah, defense first. defensive. I mean, you can, you can visually pick him up and put him into Atletico Madrid's team mm. and say, I know he's going to excel under Simeone. It's a it's a little bit more to to lift him and put him in the Liverpool team, obviously, because we play a very different way. But I do think he could fit in very, very well. And I think he'd give us a bit more dynamism in midfield and a bit more aggression. Um, do you have anyone else? No, you work away. Okay, I've got two then, because you, you've, you've named two of mine in, in Kudus and in Amrabat. So the other two that have really stood out to me that I'd be very interested in us going and having a look at um, Josko Gvardiol. Now, again, like Timber, he's a little bit shorter than what Jurgen normally likes in a centre back. And obviously, as a left footed centre back, that is Virgil's position as the left sided centre back. But I think this kid is really special. Mm. Like, really, really, really special. And I think, I, I've said this to you before, and I've come up with a solution to your caution towards buying him and saying right you're the backup to Virgil and you're also the backup to Andy Robertson and maybe you're going to take Robertson's position in the next couple of years Sepp Vandenberg as our fifth centre-back just keep him at the club and not loan him out again he has taken big steps forward over the last couple of years he's somebody that the coaching staff at the club are meant to be very very high on and if we had just for example, Trent and Ramsey, Ibu and Matip, Virgil and Vandenberg, Robbo and Gvardiol, but with the knowledge that Gvardiol is also kind of the backup to Virgil ahead of Vandenberg. That to me, if we could sell Gomez and Costas and get him in without spending a whole lot of money, I think that's a move worth making because I do think he's I'm not going to use the phrase generational because it gets chucked about far too often, but I do think he's really special. So I'm going to I'm going to start this by giving you something to get annoyed about, right? Out of all the centre backs who played at the World Cup, at least a couple of games, like one of the players, one of the very few players, to be fair, who are higher rated on a statistical basis than Josko Gbadiol is the Pebble. Deja Lovren. Yeah, but the pebble also cost him a goal, and that doesn't show up in statistics. So Another one is Nicolas Otamendi. And another one is Harry Maguire. Right, but bear in mind, Nicolas Otamendi being carried by Romero and the pebble being carried by Gvardiol. But what, what improves your statistical profile on any of these um, automated oh, rating things? Oh. A lot of short passes. Short passes and the big I am blood and thunder type nonsense defending. Charging out of position to throw yourself at headers that you don't need to go for. Last gasp tackles that you have to make because you were out of position in the first place. All of those ratings don't properly rate defenders. They never do. That's why if you look at like 
if you look at Virgil's average match rating against, say, I don't know, like a, um, Gabriel of Arsenal, right? Gabriel's a far more active defender because it's all very panicked and everything has to happen really quickly. Whereas Virgil's very relaxed and calm and doesn't have many defensive actions per game because he doesn't need to. Gabriel, I would guarantee across the last 18 months, has a higher average match rating than Virgil does. But, I mean, they don't even play the same sport. No. No, no, to be clear, that's um, nothing that we're judging. You've just tried to annoy me there. I I literally was. You did momentarily succeed. Yeah, I thought it was just funny, the names that were above. I mean, actually, you mentioned Virgil. I think the best Dutch centre-back at this World Cup for consistency has been Nathan Ake. Uh, I think he's had very, very, very good Really, really good. Yeah, he's actually bottom right out of all the uh, centre-backs that Netherlands have played. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's below De Ligt, who was awful. Yes, exactly. Um, Another time we're going to discuss De Ligt and De Vrij being as good as they have been, and yet at this moment not being in the Dutch top three. So yeah. we'll, we'll do that another time. But um, Gvardiol, my big question to you is, given how good he's been this season and given how good he's been at the World Cup and the fact he's now obviously going to be first choice for Croatia at centre-back, is he going to be willing to play left-back? Well, he's a Liverpool fan. That, that's not going to make enough of a difference. I think it might. I think it might. I think if you told him, look, you're going to play next to Virgil, because you're not he, he's he's not dumb enough to think he's going to come in and start over Virgil. No. But I think he, if you told him you're going to be our starting left back and you're going to have a, a lot of freedom in that role, like you're not obviously going to be expected to bomb forward the way Andy Robertson has. But look at what Trent does. And we're going to ask you to do similar enough things on the ball because we don't need you to overlap as much on the left wing anymore because we've now got Luis Diaz, who's more of a left winger than Sadio Mane, who was an inside forward. So I think he'd be very comfortable in that role. It's, it'd be largely a playmaking role for him. So he'd get to like show what he can do on the ball. And defensively, it's going to be a cakewalk for him. Like Left back is easier than centre back. That's the reason failed centre backs end up out there. It's easier defensively than centre back. I think he'd be. I think he'd be happy enough. How much would you pay for him? How much would I pay for him? Yeah. What did Maguire cost? Eighty. I'd pay more than that, because I think he's significantly better. But given if I'm going to play him as a left back, I probably wouldn't actually, because you know fullbacks don't pay. You don't pay as much for fullbacks. Um, I don't know, sixty, sixty-five which I think you'd get close to if you sold Joe and Costas. I think Joe still brings 35 from the right English club, maybe a little bit more. Costas probably brings 20, a little bit more with add-ons. Because even though like you don't pay as much for left-backs, left-backs aren't... There's not, a, 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 there's not an excess of good left-backs in Europe, and we just happen to have two of them. Well, I, I still hold some doubts over whether he would move to a, a team to play left back more regularly, but maybe, maybe for a year or two, and maybe even you would give him some runs at centre back on the right hand side. Anyway, I don't think we at this point want to even consider moving Virgil 
left to right to accommodate somebody else but you probably could try it out in a game or in a preseason or whatever and see how yeah they, you know they merge but even Gvardiol on that side and basically tell him you're going to learn all the defensive ways by playing all the ways around Virgil and then alongside him at times maybe even both sides or whatever maybe maybe that's something he, he can yeah and look we can we can just Jürgen can bite the bullet and play a back three at times because sometimes a back three is called for yes yes um my last one then and I've got a piece I think it's coming out today on anfieldindex.com and it's basically it's about Sophie and Amrabat and about this guy and how they could potentially be bargainous January transfers given Jude is not likely to be available until the summer and given the same goes for Enzo who's probably the Jude alternative just given the price not a similar player but we're not going to buy 200 million ish kind of midfielders so it's one or t'other and obviously Caicedo's been talked to death so there's no real point in getting into that so the other one I've got is Yunus Musa who does I I just think he he gives me real Ginny Wijnaldum vibes. Like, off the ball, I think he profiles really well as a Ginny type of defensive eight. He's a really good ball carrier. His passing is quite rudimentary and quite limited, but so was Ginny's playing in that role for us. He doesn't jump off the, the page statistically, but neither did Ginny. But in the way he tracks runners, in the way he's always well positioned, blocks off passing lanes, has really good instincts, really good timing in his challenges. At 20 years of age, I think he's got huge room for growth. And he's also a homegrown player because he spent seven years at Arsenal. Mm. Um, I like Eunice Musa quite a lot. I like his diligence of play. I think is maybe my favourite thing about him. He's very, very deliberate in everything that he does. Like you say, the tracking runners is always switched on, always aware to the danger. He's not a reactive player at all. He's always very, in terms of his positioning, in terms of what he thinks is going to be happening next, is really, really proactive about his, his uh, off-the-ball stuff. I, I sometimes am left wanting more from him on the ball, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I want maybe the little extra because he's so good at taking people on just with like a, a shift of direction. He's not like, I wouldn't say outrageously skillful with the ball at his feet or anything like that, but his change of direction is really good. His strength is impressive. His ability to uh, manipulate the ball and turn you know, different directions and open his body up properly to the pass that he wants to make is really, really good. And sometimes I want him to be a bit more forceful with that. And I'm never really sure whether that's his reluctance to do it. And he wants to make, just make sure it's, you know, doing the simple things right. Or because the fact he plays for one United States, which is a very, very muddled and middling sort of mm. team at the moment. And the fact that he plays for Valencia, which is that times 16,000. Yes. Um, you know, they're, they're never really sure if they're good or not or what they're doing and if they want to attack or if they want to really commit or if they just need to hold what they've got or if they just want to try and not lose 17-0 that day. So it's a really, a very, very conflicting pair of teams that he plays for at the minute. And I would like to see him in a better team for sure. But I, I, I feel like if I see him in a better team, I want to see more from him as well, like a lot more adventurism and bravery in his game, a lot more willingness and intent to impact in the final third. I think he's got all the tools to be all the things that he wants to be and is maybe 
a lot older of a player than his actual years are right now and his actual you know gameplay on the pitches but maybe he's been held back by the fact he plays for two car crashes basically yeah i mean he's been at valencia now three seat this is third season the first team he's on his fourth manager i think and they're a dumpster fire of a club so there's no there's no calmness around the places. It's not. It's not a place for development. If we look at the other young players that have come through in the last few years, Ferran Torres couldn't wait to get out the door. Uh, Lee Kang-ing made such a big fuss of getting out the door that they just gave him away for free. So they're just not a particularly good club for players to develop at. And obviously, Greg Berhalter is not exactly um, a football manager. No, exactly. The guy's a clown. Like so. Uh, I did have some complaints, by the way, about your suggestion that the U.S. give Greg Berhalter two more years. <laughs> They're like, does he really not like us? Does he really not like us that much? Um, I think if I wonder if Jurgen wants to get back to the type of midfield that won him a Premier League and a Champions League. Henderson, Fabinho, Ginny. And if we if we take it that he has just got eyes locked solely on Jude as one of the midfielders to come in, it's obvious that Jude is going to play the right-sided role in that midfield, the Henderson role, the one with more freedom to go and attack, which means the other two have to be more, I think, more defensive-minded. Because when we were great, and I mean really, really great, we won... Champions League and Premier League based on the fact that we were unbelievable defensively. And a big part of that was the Fabinho-Ginny double pivot. Henderson would bomb forward and go and do his thing. And the other two boys would sit in. And I think Musa in that Ginny-Wijnaldum more reserved role, while it could be frustrating, and I do get what you're, what you're saying, I would like to see more from him on the ball as well. But I do think in what we might ask him to do, I think he could be a really good fit. Now, look, it would, it's a little bit of a conversion, not as drastic a conversion as what Ginny went through, going from being a, a 10 slash winger to playing that role. But I think if you put Musa, let's say Musa and Caicedo as the six and left sided eight, I think that's a really good pair, a really young pair as well. Caicedo's tw- just turned 21, Musa's just turned 20. They're not going to demand to play every game. So you're still going to get plenty of games in there for Fab and for Thiago. You could play either of them with Fab and Thiago to rest Jude. But a Jude Bellingham, age 19, Moises Caicedo, age 21, Eunice Musa, age 20 midfield, in terms of their profiles, how good they are already, the potential in all of them, the pace, the power that you'll actually get from them, the dynamism you'll get from them. I think the balance of that midfield could give Jürgen everything he wants. Because remember, the midfield Jürgen played isn't the midfield Jürgen bought. The midfield Jürgen bought was Ox, Fab and Naby. And then he had Ginny as sort of, would have been the fourth midfielder you'd imagine, kind of first man up. And Henderson as well, obviously. Like, Musa might even just be your fourth midfielder. He doesn't necessarily have to be a long-term starter, but he could be a massively important squad player. 
And if it's true that his buyout is in around 25 to 30 million, then I think that's a, a potentially great signing at that price point as someone you can develop and can play, could play at least both eight roles and maybe develop into being able to play the sixth role in certain games as well. Yeah, that price point, I think, is, a, is, a, is an attractive option for sure. I think if there's a midfielder who you can develop who is already good, good enough to play, even if not Champions League starting calibre, let's say Champions League group stage option off the bench calibre, mm. for anywhere around the 20 to 30, that's a player you want to seriously consider. And when they're homegrown, it's, when they count as homegrown, it's just another attractive bonus to having sure. a player like that. So if you've got, say, say he's... Say that's what Klopp wanted, Ox, Fab, and Naby, right? So Jude is, is is more similar to Ox than Henderson as an attacking player because he's got that dynamism and that ball-carrying ability. Caicedo could be your Fabinho. You, you figure out who you want to be the, the player you thought Naby was going to be. If Musa is your Ginny and Curtis Jones can take a step forward and become what Henderson would have been in that kind of squad role, able to play as an eight, but Curtis can also play in the front three if needed. You could quickly rejig this midfield and have a really young, really exciting, dynamic midfield and still have Fabinho and Thiago there as well to supplement everything. And in those big games, who else do you want other than Fabinho and Thiago with one of these young, dynamic, powerful midfielders? Yeah, yeah, I think it's... They, they can't all be 70 million signings, you know? No, you can't... And you, they don't always have to be start, start an 11 signings. No. Either. We've gone over this before. Yeah, and like, just because somebody comes in and they're not an immediate starter doesn't mean that in three years Musa doesn't develop into a player that you have to start because he's just become that good. So, you know, and with our luck as well, someone will get injured. So, yeah, you have to have you have to have good options. Mm. Right, uh, we will leave it there. Is there anything else you want to touch on today before we go? No, a couple of pieces out. Um, one on Spain and how their success, you know, 2008, 2010 and so on, inspired the way that they play and the players coming through afterwards, but only of one particular kind and they're missing one or two of the other ones. So there's a piece on Spain. There's also a piece on, well, it was out after the Japan-Croatia game, but it's a, a World Cup knockouts general one. Um, after the group stage, we sort of saw a very, very different type of football and it's kind of a reminder of, the deeper you go, the more there is to win, but the more it costs you to lose. And it's like the reluctance of knockout football as such. Cool. Well, those will be up on the independents and so check out those. Um, I also want you to do a little bit of research for me. You've got family in Spain. I want you to get in touch with them and figure out what are they doing with all the like big, fast young lads in that country? Because it doesn't seem like any of them become footballers. Like there's no six, two and quick players in Spain, in the national team, where are these players? Are these young players being shipped away to other countries? Is it some sort of exchange program? I, I need to know what's going on because, like you said, they, they all Spanish players, because of the success of that World Cup team, all seem to come in very specific types. Like mm. the left backs are short and quick, the right backs are short and good defensively, the holding midfielders are tall and slow. The eights are small, brilliant first touch, great passers, super intelligent. And there's no actual strikers anymore. Fernando Torres was the last of a breed. 
I, I need to know what's going on. Um, I actually have the answer for you if you want it. Fire ahead. You know, you know, when you go to Spain on holiday and like it's all about like, you know, the water parks and the theme parks and all that kind of stuff that people go to. Right? Mm. Whenever you go there uh, in other countries, like, you know, if you go to America or Disneyland Paris or something like that, they have these like rulers at the side of the of the ride. And they say, you know, unless you're above this line in height, you're not allowed to go on this ride. Well, in Spain, it's the opposite, right? It's, it's unless like, you're below this line. Yeah, they have the they have the ruler, and and it says unless you are shorter than this, you're not allowed in this water park at all. And so, like, if it looks like this baby is just going to be taller than that line, they just don't bother with them. They just, you know, leave them or ship them away or. If, put they, them to if, work they, if they are taller, they make them run the hundred meters, and if they can do it in less than fifteen seconds, you're too quick. Fuck off. Exactly that. <laughs> what a strange, strange place. Um. Yeah, Louis Enrique, take your pointless football and go. It is time for change. There could be some big international managerial openings after this World Cup. Spain, maybe Portugal. The Germany one still looks undecided. Wouldn't be a huge surprise if Roberto Mancini walked away from the Italian job. The American job might become available. So, you know, the England job might become available. I think the French job is probably going to Zidane. Brazil might make a change. It's 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 going to be quite a quite a thing to watch. Right. We will be back tomorrow to discuss the first two quarterfinals. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash Discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.